We're, the reading today is 1 Samuel 1, 4 through 20. On the day that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because her loved her, she, he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Hear what Spirit is saying to God's people. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. And he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, 
tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. For the first few months after the birth of each of our children, all I and my wife wanted to do was tell everybody the stories of the birth of our children. I, can't, I won't speak completely for Clancy, but I know that I'll say that within that period of time immediately after our first son was born and then also later our second son, there was no person and no circumstance under which I would not take a half an hour of anybody's time (laughs) and just tell them the story of this miraculous birth of our child. In fact, how much time do you have? (laughs) Just kidding, but... As our lives changed and we became friends with more and more people who had the same experience, we continued to revel in telling and hearing from others the stories of the miraculous birth of our children. Even my own children already know the story of their births (laughs) and delight in hearing them just as I enjoy thinking about and hearing from my parents the details of the story of my own birth. There's something about that experience that captures our attention and makes us stir with a sense of connection to our parents, to the past, and to the miracle of life. For the Bible writers, they locate that sense of the miraculous somewhere else in the story of life. In reflecting on the story of Hannah this morning, the barren wife of Elkanah, who prayed at the temple and by the grace of God conceived and bore Samuel, it occurred to me that Hannah is part of a large collection of women in the stories of the Bible who are equally incapable of bearing children and yet who miraculously do. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was 90 years old and barren when the Spirit of God visited her and said, you're going to have a child. It was so unbelievable, she laughed at him. And when she bore Isaac, she named him Isaac because it means laughter. And Isaac bore Jacob, and Jacob became Israel, the people of God. Ruth, the outsider and the widow with no prospects for marriage and motherhood, 
until her mother-in-law, Naomi, navigated a course for her to be married to Obed, who sired Jesse, who sired David, the king of Israel. And Hannah, from today's story, the wife of Elkanah, who is barren and who prays for a child from the Lord and who is granted the birth of her son Samuel, who lives and stays in the temple and who becomes the prophet of the birth of the nation of Israel. And of course, from our own tradition, Mary, the virgin mother of God, whose own story we'll hear in just a few weeks and which is, in its way, a kind of a remix of all these Old Testament stories of women who, by God's grace and divine intervention, conceived and bore children. So it is that, apparently in our culture, the place that we locate miraculousness is in the birth of a child. But in the Bible, the place where God's divine activity is located is in the conception of the child. We don't go around telling people the stories of the conception of our children. (laughs) So I propose that we begin a new tradition. (laughs) I have several great stories along those lines, but I'm not going to tell them to you. And you have some of your own, I'm sure. But the reason that I want to raise this question about why the Bible looks at divine activity in one place and we see it in another is partly because of that collection of the stories of those women and where God acted in their lives, but also because of the way that Jesus, in this passage from Mark's gospel, responds to the fears of his disciples about the upheaval of the times that they live in. He chooses some peculiar words, if you ask me, and he says, When you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. This is not the only reference in scripture that compares natural disasters with birth. So we might draw from this a lesson about how it is that the writers of the Bible, the people of that ancient world, considered these two aspects of procreation. What's birth like? Well, you know, it's like global conflict. It's like an earthquake. It's like famine. Some people say the Bible was written by men, but maybe there were some women who had a hand in crafting these stories. On the other hand, what's conception like? Well, you know, it's like being visited by God. (laughs) It's like drinking from the fountain of youth. It's like having your world turned upside down in a good way. Between these two experiences is revealed to us something about the biblical worldview in which there are two spheres of activity. Creation, also known as conception, is the divine sphere of activity. It is God who creates life. It is God who plants the seed. In the darkness of the womb, the mystery of the beginnings is God's domain. Labor, delivery, the struggle and effort to bring to bear, 
to bring to life that seed that God has planted. That is the sphere of human activity. God creates life, and we labor to fulfill the creation that God has begun. And labor, as the term implies, is not easy. The disciples and those first Christians that lived in small communities in the first century lived in a time of great upheaval, of which the destruction of their temple in Jerusalem was just the preeminent sign. Everything was topsy-turvy. The old power structure was falling away, and nobody knew what was going to come next. It was clear that God was doing a new thing in the world, but it wasn't clear what it was. It was a time of great peril, great uncertainty, great suffering, and great risk. And those terms, those experiences of peril, uncertainty, suffering, and risk map quite directly onto the ancient world's experience of childbirth, in which the life of the infant and the life of the mother were at risk, and in which death was common. This is still true in many parts of the world today, if not so much true in our own world. So it makes a certain amount of sense that when Jesus' disciples are concerned about the turmoil of their age, he says to them, this is what has to happen in order for a birth to take place. They know something about labor and delivery and bringing new life into being, and so he can remind them that what's true for a woman in childbirth is true for the world as well. God has created life and planted a seed, but to bring that new life into being takes work, and it's frightening, and we don't know how it's going to turn out. It wasn't only the disciples or those first Christians that lived in a world of turmoil and uncertainty. So these words of Jesus continue to have meaning and value for us today. The divine sphere of activity is the sphere of creation. The human sphere of activity is the sphere of work and struggle, but also of hope, also of hope reminded by these stories and the example of Jesus that through the struggle, through the effort, through the labor and delivery, that seed bears forth new life, ours to care for and love. And I know that you've been waiting for me to make the connection, so I'm going to make it now, because this is really all about stewardship. It's true. It's true. God created the world. God creates life. God conceived of the universe. God conceived of the church, which for God exists in a perfect ideal state. God conceived of each of us and gave us to one another and gave us to the church. And then God said, now you bring it to life. You bear this thing into the world, and you care for and nurture and raise it to fullness. In God's sphere of creative activity, the work was done at the beginning. And ever since, it has been up to us to work together, to struggle together, to be anxious together, to fail and succeed together, to try together 
to fulfill God's vision of what the church and the world is for us. And it's only through the hard work of labor and delivery that we bring forth that being into the world to tend and care for and nurture it so that others may constantly hear from us the story of how we did it. So, in the realm of human activity, let us remember the words of Jesus and in the struggle and effort to bring this church to new life, have hope for the future, be brave, be generous, and give ourselves to the human act of bringing God's church to life. Amen. Amen.